Hello, and welcome to the Terralex Insights Podcast, where our goal is to present multicultural perspectives by leading professionals. These perspectives on contemporary issues will help lawyers and business people work better together. I'm your host, Terry Pepper Gavlik, Terralex's Chief Business Officer. And I'm really excited about today's episode. Actually, if you've been in the legal industry for a while, as I have, then today's guest actually practically needs no introduction because he's so well known. We're going to be speaking with Richard Levick, chairman and CEO of Levick, which is a globally renowned agency and particularly focused on crisis communications and public affairs and similar issues. Richard has represented companies, law firms, heads of state, and many, many other kinds of individuals and entities on some of the highest profile crises and situations. And I hope maybe we'll hear a little bit about some of those um, ripped from the headlines kinds of examples today. Richard's accomplishments are so long, and I was going through his bio trying to figure out you know, what I wanted to say in the introduction because I've known Richard for decades now. And I decided that in the interest of time, the best thing I can do is encourage our listeners to go visit your website, Richard, at um, www.levick.com, L-E-V-I-C-K. And also that they should check out your mini podcasts, particularly um, the daily in-house warrior podcast that you, that you host. And I think that will lead us into today's conversation because we're going to tap into some of those insights and discuss what keeps a uh, board of directors awake at night. So welcome to the show, Richard. Terry, thank you so much. You are so kind and generous. Um, and it has been a long time. It's great to be here. And I've always loved working with you. Yeah, well, thank you. So what does keep board of directors awake at night? <laughs> it's a little broad question, but tell us what kinds of things you're seeing nowadays that... Well, you know, I think I think the big issue, Terry, is you know what what's happened uh, just in the last few days, which is shareholder activism, uh, and we're seeing that at Exxon in particular. We're seeing it uh, to some degree at Chevron, uh, a company that we uh, represented over the years, uh, and uh, you were seeing it from the courts with Shell, uh, Royal Dutch Shell. We're also seeing it obviously after January 6th and in Georgia. So the issue is when you're looking at uh, the arc of history at different periods, 1909, JP Morgan and the Federal Reserve, when you saw companies starting to step forward and become active, in the the body politic, you know, you started to see that certainly during World War II. Uh, you saw it to some degree, but more on the defensive during the Vietnam War. And you're seeing it again uh, on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, Me Too, uh, and obviously climate change. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, access to universal franchise. And so we're seeing companies having to take positions. And regardless of a position that a company may take, there are, you know, there's a whole spectrum of concerns. If you're Patagonia, and you take a position that is uh, in green and anti-Trump as they did, there's really not a lot of risk there. I mean, that's pretty consistent with their brand. If you're uh, maybe the, uh, you know, the spice company uh, that also takes a, um, takes a lot of political stands, then that's a little more risky because it's not really consistent uh, with who you are. Um, but nonetheless, it's a position that you've scoped out. Then you take a look at Nike on the spectrum, and one would argue that, you know, very, very smart, but it was a business decision born of understanding where their market was going rather than where it was, and they were willing to take a risk. And remember, 
they took on the NFL and their support of Colin Kaepernick and the NFL had refused to budge on his kneeling as a form of protest over what would be, you know, what became the Black Lives Matter movement. He talked about, you know, an early beacon shining a light on a tragic problem. Uh, and the NFL was uh, turned a blind eye, obviously. I mean, if you look at their ownership, you understand uh, why, but they're also an extraordinarily large, effective, powerful, one of one of the two most powerful sporting uh, businesses uh, in the world, you know, and look how long it took them to adopt the forward pass. So it's not like they were uh, going to be leaders on it, but now they are. So Nike won, and and that is remarkable. Their sales increased as well. Then you you know as you keep continuing the spectrum, you look at Delta, and uh, they uh, they did nothing wrong uh, on the voting uh, restriction bills because they were trying to make them better, but it was, they perceived it as business as usual. And if you remember the famous memo where their CEO, uh, there's a pull quote from the, uh, in the memo uh, from the CEO and it talking about how they've tried to improve it. And that was interpreted uh, by the general public once it made it into the media as supporting voter suppression laws. So it's interesting how business as usual be, uh, can move at a pace that's slower than the evolution and the arc of, uh, of history. So I think companies in Texas took note and other companies are as well. But the issue is, you know, PAC funding after January 6th, uh, companies are starting to pull back on their no, uh, no PAC pledge funding for that cycle. And when you think about it, not really a necessarily, I mean, it's historic, but not necessarily courageous because it's post cycle. So of course, they're, you know, they're pulling back anyway. Anyway, I could go on and on. But I think the issue is, where are we with shareholder activism? Where are we with mercantile, uh, mercantile activism? Well, and we see this not just in the corporations, um, but we see it in law firms. And with law firms, it's not just trying to figure out which side of these issues that you're on, but also how do you align with your, your clients? And that's been a real struggle. And I've seen people, companies and law firms paralyzed by their indecision, because what happens if they make a mistake? What, what's the consequences if they get it wrong? Well, you know, let's first of all, let's look at, you know, with the, the four corners of this. And it's a great question, Terry. I think that the recent uh, attacks against Jews, the anti-Semitism that we've seen after the 11-day uh, battle between Hamas and Israel over the, the Gaza Strip is indicative of some of the challenges here. So you have the Me Too movement uh, in terms of just the last couple of years, uh, you uh, and you know, and which a, a movement, by the way, that was started 12 years ago for the most disenfranchised of people, young black girls, and didn't mm -hmm. make it to become a central issue until largely white women, successful white women, started making it a cause du jour. And that's its own issue in terms of, you know, I, I, the phrase I use a lot, the arc of history, but we have to study these things to understand corporate vulnerability. Next, we have the Black Lives Matter movement. Then we have AAPI, uh, Asian uh, Americans uh, and Pacific Islanders. And now we're seeing uh, the issue of anti-Semitism. And I want to separate that from criticism of Israel, as, as President Biden has been careful to do, and others as well. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but having said that, herein lies the problem. 
which is there's going to be other ugly attacks on other groups soon. And, you know, the thing that, uh, that I think is sort of poignant about this most recent series of events, the Israeli-Hamas uh, battles and the anti-Semitism that we've seen in parts of the world, including the United States, is that one, in a cancel culture, when is criticism part of our epistemology, how we learn, how we discuss? We need to do that. I hate when I see on the left that they are critical of speech they don't like and then call it dangerous. Mm -hmm. The only form of truly dangerous speech is calling speech dangerous and thereby trying to ban it. So, you know, the left has to be very careful about its selective embrace of the First Amendment, just as the right, uh, you know, who practices cancel culture on Liz Cheney while decrying uh, cancel culture. But uh, having said that, what happens, one, when you see speech itself, discussion, conversation being framed as dangerous, and that's challenging for law firms, just as it is for academic institutions? Disagreement is how we learn. It's, a, you know, it's part of the conversation. It, it is the conversation, and it has to continue. Uh, and two, what's going to happen next? Now, here we are as we're having this conversation. I know some law firms are just as the president is. President Biden uh, issuing penning a letter on anti-Semitism. Well, what what's going to happen next? Because there will be, uh, you know, we've represented a lot of Arab countries. I'm Jewish myself, you know, so obviously the the Israeli Hamas uh, situation has some uh, level of personal interest. Uh, but you know, uh, we've represented multiple Gulf uh, countries, and I've seen lots of anti-Arab bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, over the years. Well, that's going to be, you know, is that going to return again as it did after 9-11? Americans didn't distinguish uh, between terrorists and anyone who looked like they were Arabic. And I can tell you, representing so many of our close allies, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the uh, Kuwaitis, that, uh, you know, you're very sensitive. Well, that issue is next. What about Native Americans? Do law firms and academic institutions and presidents issue uh, statements and pass legislation and uh, try and appear, and I don't like this term and we can get to it later, but try and appear woke um, every time there's the next egregious attack. And just like for corporations, there have to be some limits to their involvement because at some point the business of law is law and the business of business is business. Mm -hmm. And it's important to step up. It is important to be courageous but it also can't be the full-time occupation. Well, who makes the decision in a corporation? Is it agreement of a board? Is it the chairman or CEO? I mean, is it is it divisive to make a decision of which side of an issue you're gonna be on or whether to issue a statement or not issue a statement? Uh, you know, I think every every company is different. One of the, one of the things that uh, I argued, uh, have been arguing for years is that you know, if you go back in time, something I've been trying desperately to do uh, as I've aged, and that's not working. I'm at older all, than but, you, so don't worry about it. Right, <laughs> You're a youngster. We're, we're both in our late twenties now. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, but if if you go um, back in time, you go back to Johnson and Johnson's Tylenol, Jim Burke. Our recollection is he acted instantaneously, and it is the gold standard of crisis communications. This is 40 years ago when, when Tylenol in, in uh, Illinois, largely Chicago, had been 
uh, injected with a toxin and a number of people, I think it was eight or nine people were killed. And we could spend the whole show just on, you know, what a great job they ended up doing. But in terms of speed, uh, it was four and a half days. The FBI wow. was preventing Jim Burke from uh, doing anything. And it was only on that fifth day, you know, it's sort of the Reader's Digest version of the Bible, not seven days, five days. <laughs> no, on the fifth day, um, that's when they pull all their over-the-counter pain medications. And by the way, brilliant. He did it before the FDA required anything, not just Tylenol, all uh, the over-the-counter pain medications. And for any of your listeners who are wondering about the profit of sacrifice when you make a short-term sacrifice, for the next 30 years, up until just the last four or five years, Johnson & Johnson was separable from all the other pharmaceutical companies in terms of its brand, people perceiving it as putting its customers first above profits, safety and concern for customers. Talk about, you know, would you pay uh, one quarter uh, of sacrifice for 30 years of a brand halo? If I had a crystal ball, I would. <laughs> right, well, but that's the kind of courage uh, yeah. you know, and foresight that Jim Burke had, may he rest in peace, and, and that uh, is required. But you go back then and you'd say, wow, four and a half days. Well, you flash forward 30 years, almost 30 years to Tony Hayward getting that call at 11 o'clock at night in London regarding the Gulf oil spill, the, uh, what was known, would become known as the Gulf oil spill very quickly, by the way. Um, and considering there were so many other players, Hal Burton, Anadarko, Moex, Moeco, we, you know, we did represent one of those interests in there, um, that you uh, think about that. By that night, right, it's already a national story CNN devotes 108 straight days of wall to wall, literally, you know, morning to night coverage, Wolf Blitzer sitting there over, you know, and, and that was the showroom. And the, uh, that was a studio. And in fact, for those first two days, when television cameras couldn't get there, they went to their file footage and used Exxon Valdez mm -hmm. <laughs> footage, which was entirely inappropriate. Uh, one might argue its ethics as well. But I, and, and, you know, and I should say, you know, in, in BP's defense and our client was not BP, but that, uh, you know, people's impressions were the, you know, the, the foliage and the, the bird, the fauna and the, on the fauna, the fauna and the foliage, um, flora and fauna and, and that, you know, all these birds, you know, the covered with oil, but not all of that was accurate. And of course the post disaster cleanup was miraculous also, uh, not covered, but you know, the issues for another day, the point here being speed, Jim Burke had two news cycles a day and had, uh, four and a half days. Tony Hayward had a matter of minutes, you know, when he gets that call, it's 11 o'clock at night there, they still got the, you know, the East coast, uh, and the Midwest and West coast news hours, you know, uh, are yet to come and they have no time. And my point being here is that we used to exist in a period where companies could be reactive reactive to crisis. Now, the only way you're going to win a news cycle is to be proactive. And the only way you can do that is if your tracking is excellent. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, companies are not good at this. It's not that they don't have access to the best and big data. It's not that they don't have different silos, you know, in HR, GR, government relations, PR, brand, legal, outside legal, looking at it. It's that they don't have that sense of the, the arc of history. They don't have that sense of uh, the external sense. They're looking at it from a legal point of view. They're looking at it from their brand point of view. So if you take 
you, you know, you look at G, the anti-GMO movement. The first anti-GMO website goes up in 1999. The industry, Syngenta, Monsanto, they don't respond until 13 years later. Mm. Well, by then, you know, people's minds are already made up. Fracking, Keystone, Sugar, the Trans-Canada Pipeline, all of those issues, the canaries in the coal mine were there. And in some of those cases, we wrote, went to the industry fracking, we went to the industry and said, look, you can see this once the movie Gasland on HBO first time ever, a movie on one of the cable channels morphs from being a movie to being the lead, uh, the top site found when you looked up that keyword. And by the way, there is no such word as fracking right. That's defined by the, the, the anti uh, movement. And but that became that's the search term. Well, once Gasland uh, and fracking were the it was the key word and key site, the the narrative was already won by the environmentalist. And I'm not taking a position for or against here. I'm just saying, if you're a company, if you're an industry, and you don't see that as they did not, and I remember going to one of the two natural gas associations and saying, you know, you need to look at this, and they don't. And so, the lesson here is that Kodak made so much money in film development, even though they own the patent on digital photography, they didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, our, we are disruption occurs at an extraordinary pace, you have to be able to track the future with an understanding of history, so that we can be like Merlin in Camelot, La Morte Arthur, and be able to see the future and lead into it rather than try and catch up. And in the absence of being able to do that or making a misstep, is it one and done? I mean, you get one big mistake and is your company done or can you recover? I guess no, there's probably examples on both sides. That's right. I mean, definitely, first of all, companies can in actual, uh, absolutely recover. For individuals, it's more challenging. You know, uh, we, we talked and, you know, I come from the left, you know, we're a, we're a nonpartisan agency, we represent uh, everybody. Uh, and, you know, of course, I look at the world globally, you know, because we've represented so many countries. So I certainly don't see the world as, as Democrat and Republican, I see it much more broadly. But I have to tell you, I'm deeply concerned when you see movements now that come from the left, and I don't mean to pick on them because there's plenty on the other side, and I'm sure we have already mentioned and could spend the entirety of the show there, but issues of due process, statute of limitations, First Amendment, the, the uh, concern over evidence, um, the, a jury of your peers, all of these things that are processed that are constitutional in nature, privacy, these are extremely important and we don't get to discard them because the speaker is saying things or believes things that we don't like. We don't simply get to discard them, that the process exists for a reason and we're better for it. Government is better when the parties disagree but come to compromise. We may not like it. Kamala Harris didn't like it and during the campaign trail when candidate uh, Joe Biden had historically reached out to Senator Eastland, the historically highly conservative and uh, racist uh, senator, um, but it's also how he got things done. And we may not like how sausage is made. And in this, in, in the, you know, in a world in which uh, everything is transparent, everything is digital and everything is fast, um, 
there isn't time for that conversation. But yes, companies absolutely can recover and do. Uh, and you see them bouncing back uh, pretty quickly. Look, Chick-fil-A has, has notoriously had historically an anti-LGBTQ stance. How is LGB, how has Chick-fil-A withstood the, uh, in a time in, in history where the LGBTQ movement since Stonewall some you know, 50 years ago, the Stonewall riots over 50 years ago, in such a powerfully important part of our social consciousness and its own civil rights uh, movement. Well, how have they withstood that? Well, let's look at it. One, it comes from and this again, not to defend anything, simply to articulate facts. It comes from a religious, not a political point of view. Mm -hmm. So it has in integrity, even if you do not like uh, where they uh, where they are. Two, they communicated that uh, that uh, who was it? Dan Cathy, uh, Cathay, the CEO mm -hmm. um, at the time. And it was communicated and it was communicated with genuineness and people can decipher and understand. Three, when, when the company was passed to the sun, uh, it was uh, that, and as the company started to go national rather than a middle of America, they started to lessen that position and they continue to do that now where they no longer fund anti-LGBTQ groups. And in fact have, as they move forward, seeing their philanthropy strategically, not just as charity, but philanthropically, uh, pardon me, but strategically, um, they have a much different position. So companies should take the long view and understand it's not just what happens to our share price today, but, but who are we? What is our integrity? Where are, we, where are we going going forward? But each issue has to be looked at uh, individually. For individuals, the scolding, shaming, and attacks are uh, on social media are really brutal, and you know I have awful. to tell you, it's awful. And I and, and the self righteousness uh, of the attackers, I, Terry, you know, you know, I've been all over the world. We, you know, we we represented President Goodluck Jonathan of Nigeria when the nearly three hundred schoolgirls were kidnapped by the terrorist group Boko Haram in, in Nigeria. We got death threats as a result of that. Our offices were protested, and here we are on the side of the angels. But you know, we, we became part of the Nigerian presidential campaign, which uh, coincidentally was timed uh, about this time. Uh, and all of that in Nigerian politics was uh, deliberate from the Boko Haram's point of view. But be that as it may, we're getting death threats. You know, I've been followed by spies in different countries. We've you know been in uh, Pakistan on the inert fertilizer issue, and on and on and on. But when I get asked the question, "Where's the most dangerous place on the planet?" I always say Twitter. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is the most dangerous place, it's, and it's incredibly brutal. Isn't it? And, and, uh, you know, I just keep thinking of Rodney King, you know, can, why can't we all just get along? You, you know, you, there are three things that you can do when you see a post you don't like, you can not respond, you can write your respond and not press send or whatever, depending on the site with whatever the equivalent is. Um, or you can try and respond with uh, some uh, kindness and wisdom. From a professional point of view, I will tell you that 
you know, we look at these issues really carefully with, with lots of sophisticated software. I, I do think a mistake that a lot of companies make when it, when it looks at big data, and I, I mentioned part of this earlier, which is they don't look at it uh, holistically. They don't look at it with a lens of history. And one of the things you're looking for are critics, you know, high authority critics who are reasonable because those are the people who can change the conversation. But yes, it's tragic. I, you know, I cannot tell you the number of calls we get on Christmas Eve or late at night. The, the toothpaste is already out of the tube. Here's what's happened on Twitter. And the, the uh, Freudian, Faustian, or Shakespearean tragedy in terms of who's the, the villain and who's the savior, has already, those roles have already been defined mm -hmm. too late. Yeah. Wow. What about, um, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, the news cycle is so different now too. It's, you have to be able to be nimble and respond so quickly. Um, and the best, some of the best users of that are the current generation um, students and how are they impacting some of these issues or the decisions that companies or boards are making? I, I think you and I talked about this a little bit before. I thought it was an interesting point to raise. Well, of course, you're asking now. You're relying on my memory, uh, <laughs> Terry, which is always where students are putting pressure on companies. Um, I can't remember the specific example of the company at the time that you and I were chatting a while ago, but um, it was probably if it was the legal, it was probably the legal industry, and it was uh, probably uh, the students at Columbia, it was and, and Harvard, um, and. Um, you know, they've taken uh, the this position of being of uh, opposing law firms representing of uh, the of energy companies of uh, Exxon uh, Exxon Mobil, uh, completely forgetting that lawyers have an obligation to represent. Uh, I don't think they would take the same position regarding criminal matters. Oh, you can't represent them because they're accused of murder or they're accused of heinous crimes. Um, so forgetting that and also forgetting, I think in most cases, their own university endowments uh, at the time. But they, they initially picked on one and now many law firms and I think that it's a it's it is a troubling trend uh, because you know we're we're looking for a purity standard and and let me say this that uh, you know I'm my master's degree is in environmental advocacy I worked on environmental issues for many years uh, including uh, the first toxic substance control commission uh, which was an oversight agency over any of the state. Uh, EPAs or Department of Natural Resources in any state. Uh, it was Michigan after the polybrominated biphenyl crisis 40 years ago, 45 years ago. So, you know, my environmental uh, credentials are historic and long. But nonetheless, again, I, you know, I, I believe in the process and I believe that law firms uh, and companies, um, you know, certainly law firms have a right to represent uh, these companies and that the, the focus should be on the issue to change the company behavior. And we're seeing that, of course, with activist shareholders with uh, Exxon uh, Mobil in particular. Um, but the law firms 
should be above that fray. They're not. They're not right now. Uh, and uh, if law students are going to turn that light on law firms, they need to turn it on themselves as well with the with the same level of criticism and concern. Yeah, I think it's even maybe there's a. Um a factor in a law firm that also probably makes it very difficult to make the decisions. I remember when I used to work in law firms of who you can and can't represent when there's, you know, different, different partners in the firm having different political views or, um, you know, economic or social views is the fact that they are partnerships and it is consensus driven in a lot of places. And I think that does tend to just stifle um, maybe standing up, taking a stand, but also, um, maybe sometimes doing what they think is the right thing because they, they, they can't get agreement among the partners. It's, it's a troubling scenario. Well, you know, it is in 40 years ago, 35 years ago, um, we were starting to talk about law firm brands and what is a law firm brand. Imagine if we now start to go to law firm brands being defined by who they represent and that's going to be really, really challenging. You, know, you brought up the Paul Weiss example, and I remember speaking with Brad Karp, the managing partner at the time, and I, and I wrote a, a piece on this also, which is the, 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 the law students protesting it were protesting and they were saying, you know, we're not going to do interviews there. And isn't that nice to be in that kind of position yeah. where you can pick and choose which of the blue chip law firms you're, you're you know, going to interview with. Um, uh, talk about a certain level of entitlement, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> but Paul Weiss is the firm that did Brown versus Board of Education pro bono. Uh, it is the firm that represented Thurgood Marshall. They have a long history of openness to a variety of religions, including Jews, when that was not accepted uh, on Madison Avenue or Wall Street. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a long history of uh, uh, litigation on women's issues and uh, African-American and um, black and minority issues. And to ignore that and throw all of that out is, you know, that's, that's really troubling because that gets us very quickly to the perfect standard. And that is that we don't care, you know, we're ahistorical. We don't care all of all the things that you did. We only care about this one thing. I, I hate to think that we're moving to single issues. I think we are, sadly. You know, I, I think we are too. And, you know, because we, are, we get so, so much over information, 20 years ago, three to 5,000 messages a day. And then that was way too much. And all we could do is categorize. Now it's two or three times or four times that. And, and we don't even have the ability to review anything when we categorize. We simply, we have this need to put it in good, bad, left, right, Republican, uh, Democratic category. But again, that's why I keep getting back to corporations have to use their peacetime wisely. Do your tracking and an analysis. See what's happened to your competitors. See what's happening in your industry. Just don't whistle uh, past the graveyard. See where it's going next. Understand that your brand now extends to your entire supply chain. You know, if you go back to um, Apple and Foxconn, if you go back to Takata, these were B2B companies that no one had ever heard of outside of their handful of customers, the dozen or so auto industry, you know, for the airbags or um, the, the big tech companies that used uh, the, the Chinese manufacturing. And 
uh, but now, now those companies too are in the limelight. So your supply chain is as much a part of your brand, your ESG, how you advertise, where you advertise, how you recruit. Look, Terry, the big challenge for law firms is uh, right now, more so than who they represent, is whom they hire and promote. And law firms have not done a very good job on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, they haven't done, uh, you know, they're, they're better at recruiting than they are promoting. And, you know, here's the real challenge. Think about this for a moment. This is going to be a huge conundrum for law firms in the, in the not distant future. It's right around the corner. For 50, nearly 50 years, since, you know, the, the whole, we began moving, you know, Bates v. Arizona, 1977, law firm advertising, the whole merger mania, so that, you know, goes back a little over 40 years. We are, we've, how do we distinguish ourselves? One of the ways we do is we say our exclusive recruitment. Wow, it's Yale and it's Harvard and whatnot. I'm sorry, but what is another word for exclusive? Right? We are this whole uh, bent on exclusivity. I mean, it's on every lawyer's bio. I mean, the order of the COIF, right? You know, top of the law school class. And yet, what are law firms doing to reach far further back? Here's the challenge. Here's where law firms need to be focused. Not on saying, oh, look at our recruitment. Hey, we just promoted our first you know, female managing partner, or we now have an you know, African-American managing partner. Um, and look, our numbers doubled from 1% to 2% in terms of uh, people of color, you know, in partnership or, you know, from 5% to 8%. Where they need to be focusing on one, and we've seen this during COVID, is the technology gap. If you, if you do, uh, come from a low income family, you, then, then COVID has been a disaster for you because you don't, there's just not, there's a huge bandwidth issue. So what are we doing to make up that gap, that access to technology? Two, what are law firms doing with HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities? And, you know, I do a number of podcasts. One is to co-host with a president, uh, George T. French Jr. of Clark Atlanta University and HBCU. And we talk about this issue a lot. But what are law firms doing to partner with HBCUs so they reach students as undergraduates? So what we're looking at is, you know, if you look at the problem of a bereft partnership in terms of diversity, the solution is not just better recruitment. It's not just better training. It's not just a uh, better selection from associate to partner, but it's uh, also looking backwards and saying, we've created part of this problem. We've created part of this problem through our exclusivity by the ranking of law firms. Thank you, Stephen Brill, an American lawyer, but in the, in the ranking of law schools, thank you, US News and World Report. Um, by the way, we've worked on any number of campaigns for different law schools on um, uh, U.S. News and World Report. Do you know what we found is the single biggest factor that influenced um, standing for law schools? Not obviously amongst, you know, the top 10 percent, right, the top 10, but, you know, for the, the grand middle. Do you know what it was? I'm dying to know, but no, I don't know. Volume of media exposure. <laughs> if we're hearing about the law school a lot, 
it must be good. Now, none wow. of the right, none of the raiders are going to say that, but it obviously influences their opinion. And uh, you know, for the, for the law schools that uh, we represented, we would track the amount of media, and it would correlate to uh, you know how they moved up the line. Well, you know what that says about U.S. News and World Reports and and, and its ability to accurately relay uh, rate uh, law schools, as I'm sure you know, it's a modicum of accurate. But it is, let us not confuse it with precision. Yeah. And any of those kind of rankings, I totally agree. That's right. Well, then we can I, get into AP football right yeah. away. So. <laughs> As we come to the close, you know, you raised, you mentioned ESG, and it's such a, to a, a topic of um, discussion, certainly in law firms in our network and with companies. And it's interesting lately, I've had several conversations, both with law firms and with their clients, in which um, there's this real hope that people will move beyond what they sell and what they say they have for diversity, equity, and inclusion or um, environmental and social corporate governance and things like that. Because if you go on company websites or law firm websites, usually you'll find a great marketing piece about the things that are being done, but there's not the actual, um, all the implementation or the steps behind it where it's really being put into place and but people are sort of buying their own marketing messages so there's this real hope that we'll start to see this alignment between what companies say they desire and companies doing what what they're asking their law firms to do as well representation on their boards and support of you know historically black colleges or whatever the whatever the the thing is that they could be doing and that law firms will follow suit or they won't be representing these clients do you think ESG has the potential to move the needle like that, the, the growing um, awareness and inf impact of it? Well, uh, you know, uh, big question, first of all. Yeah. Uh, e e ESG, um, we, all, we all know, you know, what it stands for, but the S always confuses me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's social, it's everything. It's everything, it yep. everything right? Uh, it's it's uh, a real challenge. I think I think the big issue on on, on ESG, you know, and it was CSR before that. Um, and, it wasn't that long ago, last um, couple of months ago. <laughs> right, you know, and and you know, and keep in mind that it was always, oh, this is the better way. Look, we keep coming up with, uh, you know, the next big thing um, since hula hoops, and uh, you know, I'm pretty sure Adam and Eve had a hula hoop, uh, their own hula hoop as well, and and so you know, what is this? And here we are with the SG. So. I I, th I think that you know we're we're at this point where and and I applaud so much of what these companies are doing. I I, I applaud and found the historical significance after January sixth uh, with the the PAC ban on the one forty seven that refused to certify that I talked about earlier, uh, one hundred forty seven Republicans. Um, you know, and I, I supported that because I think it's you know I, that it was extraordinarily. I mean, it's, it's the first time since 1814 that the capital has been invaded. Um, so, um, and as my British friends always say to me, oh, you have to remind us, thank you very much, 1814, <laughs> let it go, let it go. But, you know, it's this, it, it's this extraordinary moment and it called for extraordinary reactions. But here's the thing, and I, you know, I just did a podcast earlier today, which will air around the time that this airs with a, a Republican lobbyist who heads a bipartisan firm and was in the uh, George W. Bush administration. And, and he made a great point, which is he said, look, if companies really want to step up here, and the same is true for law firms, 
what do you do? Everyone focuses on the virtue signaling and how can we show. What you do is when it comes to voting, you give people paid time off yep. to vote. You want them to, do you know why 56% of Latinos and a similar number of African-Americans don't take the vaccine? It's not because they're- I was just gonna say, there's a parallel I'm, to the vaccine. Right. Yep. It's, they're not anti-vax. What it is is I'm concerned if I have a side effect, I can't afford those three days without pay. It's right. as simple as that. So if we, uh, if companies now would step up and say, we, if you know, if you have an adverse effect and you can't work for two or three days, um, then um, we're going to pay for that PTO. And what happens? Suddenly, we're close to herd immunity levels. You know, we're already over fifty percent. Talk about a dramatic step. And that's not virtue signaling. That's quietly doing the right thing. Um, you want to help ease people back into the office. One of the things we need to look at at a time when schools aren't yet back in session until the fall, but if we want to open our offices earlier, then how do we do this regarding childcare? Because you can't be in two places uh, at once. If we're concerned about uh, the rise, the, the, the horrific rise of uh, anti-access uh, to voting issues so that those, you know, I mean, and, and look, I'm, if you ask me politically, I'm, I'm a constitutionalist. I, I think that I think the document means something. I think it's important and process is important. It is, there's nothing more important than franchise. But if we want to stand for that, yes, we can and should and, and uh, say something and do something. But what we should also be doing is we should be giving PTO for voting. We should, the, 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 on election days, uh, we should be running campaigns as a number of companies are um, to help get out the vote. We should encourage that and make that part of our ESG mm -hmm. rather than just part of our brand. Yep, here, here, and we could go on and maybe we're gonna have to have you back because so fascinating and you have such a great, um, perspective on so many things. I love to listen to you. So I'm going to be listening to your podcasts even more now. But uh, as a reminder to our guests or to our listeners, sorry, we've been speaking with Richard Levick and um, we will put in our liner notes how they can find you so they can learn more about you and some of the things that you do. Really appreciate you spending the time with us today, Richard. Thank you. Terry, it's great. Thank you for all that you do.